Welcome to From Stuck to Growth, the podcast that takes you from the state of stuck to moving at the speed of growth. Here's your host, whose hard-won lessons led to these conversations today, personal growth geek, mentor, Glenn Lightfight. Thank you for visiting us on From Stuck to Growth. I'm excited to have Christine Cavallo here. Thanks for joining me, Christine. Thank you so much, Glenn. Really excited to be chatting with you. It's been fun getting to know you a little bit online, and and I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Christine. Uh, Glenn and probably quite a few people know me from my rowing career. Um, I was on the U.S. national team starting in 2012 as a junior up to right now this summer going for what I think is my eighth national team. Uh, spanning different disciplines, different age categories throughout that time. Um, so that's probably the most most prominent thing that people would know me for. But I've uh, I've done some school and I have some uh, some work that is paralleling all of that. And it's been a fun life to balance so far. Sounds like it. And I think you don't give your academic career as much uh, credit as you should, because most of us would dream to go to the schools that you've gone to and learn the things you've done. So to start with, I was starting to think about what I would be interested in talking to you about. But I think first thing that came to mind is your drive and competitiveness. Where does where does that come from in you? And how do you balance that with life? Uh, the short answer is I don't really know, and neither do my parents. Um, when I was a kid, I remember, and I wrote my application essay to college on this, but in first grade, I had really bad handwriting and was my whole childhood was asthmatic, terrible at moving my body, couldn't really do much of anything, didn't have that niche that I could really plug into. And then there was just one day when we were all running a 200 meter warm up, whatever it was for PE that day. And I decided that I was going to win. And I really just started moving through the other students. I was passing the little league baseball players who were like, don't worry about her. She's going to get tired. And I was like, no, I'm not. I decided that I wasn't. And I get to the end and I'm bright red. The PE coach is probably quite worried that I'm going to need to go to a doctor's office immediately. Um, But I I think a flip switched there where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm getting made fun of for not having good handwriting and girls are supposed to have good handwriting and all this, all these other things. And I realized that I could and was willing to push myself in a certain way that was then rewarded. And I think I've just been kind of chasing that feedback loop since and really being validated by any opportunity I've had to push. And that's kind of snowballed into where I am today. But it was definitely like there was a moment in the first grade where I can kind of trace it all back to. That's cool that you can kind of trace it back. That's an interesting thing. I love the fact that you found that as well, and at such a young age to be able to learn to channel that. Yeah, and I I think it's exactly that. It was my way of channeling things. Um, And then that just became sort of my framework for life. I think a lot of us are shaped in that way, whether we know it or not, from an early age into the ways we find outlets for things. We all see it in the traumas that we have, in the experiences that we have, all those things, I think, see that in life that I think it's interesting to be able to pinpoint it down because so many of us have trouble going backward. And just going back to your rowing career, I was really curious, as you've participated as a single 
and you've participated in a quad. Some's very team oriented, some not as team oriented. Which do you like better? And, and is there any competitive differential or mindset differential that you go into with some of that? Hugely, huge, huge range. I mean, when I first really first started rowing, I switched over from soccer and the four by 400 and I was very team motivated. Uh, but I was also very good at the rowing machine in a solo event. So I would succeed in the solo events. Can't really explain that, actually, because I really did feel like I was so motivated by the team dynamic. Um, I raced eight person boats throughout all of college. We won national championships. There was one race where I passed out and I, I would not have passed out if I was rowing in a single by myself. I was passed out because I was in a boat of eight people and pushing my heart and soul past where the human body is supposed to be going. But as I've gone through the sport, I really struggled for a bit when I was training the single, when it became mm -hmm. more solitary. And now what I've realized is that even now, as I'm training the single and the double and the quad, the solo is more of a mindset. You mm -hmm. can still be on a team and be in a one-person boat, and you can be in a multi-person boat and feel very alone. So it's it's not necessarily the boat class for me anymore. It's the environment that I'm in whenever I'm doing any of the boat classes. When you're in that, what type of mindset do you have going into that? You know, what's going through your mind as you're in that really very short period of time that you're racing? How do you stay focused and how do you keep yourself in the appropriate mind space to be able to be in that level? I definitely like my racing version of myself more than my training version of myself. I have a terrible attention span. Rowing, you have to do 100-minute sessions, and I'm daydreaming the whole time. And if I can do all 100 minutes, I feel lucky that day. Um, and I feel like I have to get lucky in order to train consistently. But then once I get to the racing season, I'm able to really dial my focus in. It's a lot more enjoyable. I'm able to be more present. Uh, I've worked on trying to take that energy from race day and work it backwards. So one week out, I'm really excited. Now it's two weeks out. I'm starting to feel that excitement three, four. And the more that I can in September kind of dose myself with a little bit of that excitement for that race that's coming up in April of the next year, mm -hmm. like amazing. So I've kind of worked on mental skills to get myself through the grind process but if we want to talk about that passing out moment, that was me going for this Herculean effort on race day. So another thing I learned is that the race day should be 100% of what you're capable of, not more. It shouldn't be 120% of what you're doing in practice. You should practice with the diligence of the exact same mechanics that you want to have on race day and those standards. And if you can't do it in practice, you should not go into a race expecting that you are going to be overperforming. That prep work should be done behind the scenes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think as get into athletics and do those types of things, I don't declare myself an athlete yet, but you know, in the running and, and working out that I do, I, I've seen that as well. It's like my expectations when I went and ran my marathon were one thing. And then, then reality was a little bit something else too. I did have definitely polluted air when I ran it, but that was another, that's another story. 
as I think about this, how did that mindset change or did it change as you tackled things like your academic career? So before I dive into that, you can't yeah. say that you're not an athlete and then that you ran a marathon in back-to-back sentences. Like that's just, those, <laughs> those are not mutually, those are not compatible sentences. Um, Point taken. Once you switch the mindset of, I'm doing this workout to punish my body in this one-off moment to I'm training for like a, a bigger goal or there's some sort of pattern in my workout and I can see growth over time. It's that growth element that I think makes you an athlete and the willingness to have a growth mindset when approaching your physical literacy, I guess I'll call it. Ooh, I, that, like that. I think that's the athletic identity. Ooh, um, love that. Yeah. I mean, you have the medals hanging on the wall. They, they count for it. They count. Yeah. Um, the academic side of my career, I also, it's hard to place exactly where it, it started for me, but I was similarly both competitive yet not willing to waste my time. So I remember, like, I was never good at the... Um, like diligent, clean edge, cut this perfectly, handwriting perfect, but I had the ideas and I wanted to get the job done and I wanted to move quickly while doing it. Uh, I was a pretty good test taker. I was in a lot of AP classes in high school. I think I took 10 total and then was in dual enrollment at a university for the last two years. Um, And I also was on a national team and set a few world records. So that combination made me very appealing to a lot of schools who tried to select for athletes that were high performers, who stood out, who could demonstrate that they were dedicated to a craft beyond school, but not one million different things like rowing is very time consuming. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I feel like I I got lucky because I also dragged my feet on whether or not I wanted to row in college right to the end. I kept every possible door open. And then when I was going to look for schools, uh, rowing and academics collided and I had a scholarship offer at Stanford that was just ridiculous to even think about turning down. I've told the story a few times and my teammates know, but Stanford was not my number one choice. Uh, I was dragging my feet. And then the day that I got there and I moved in and there's palm trees in front of my dorm, I took a step back. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. New England would have been a little bit too cold for me for four years. So this is pretty good. And I definitely would have been happy in other places. And I know that Um, I've had so many friends go other places and seen through their eyes, the person that they grew into. And I know I grew differently because I went to Stanford and that I think in this feedback loop way, I, I was not academic when I showed up per se, but then I got my teeth kicked in that first quarter uh didn't have my GPA went up the whole time let's just say from that first quarter to senior year every term my my GPA was going up and I started to believe that I was worthy of an academic title uh and then that's kind of carried with me since so tell me a little bit more about that belief that you're worthy of academics I think that's something that a lot of us I've certainly struggled that first semester in, in in college for sure and, and uh, had a very similar GPA path although mine probably idled out probably a little bit before yours did as I think about it, that's something that we all have challenges with 
is recognizing who we are and, and how do we grasp that identity as we move forward. Is there anything we could learn from that? Yeah. Um, I don't, it's, it's tricky. I don't think I had the archetype of the person that I am today available to me when I was younger. And I think there's positives and negatives to that. One being that it took me a little bit of time before I had the guardrails up for me to sprint in a direction, knowing that it was worth sprinting in. And I had to build those guardrails myself, but also that I have invented something that I'm really proud of, which is my life. And I didn't really fall into a cookie cutter mold on what that was going to be. Um, so yeah, there are definitely times when I look back on high school and college and think, wow, I, I squandered that or I missed that opportunity. And I see other people who've gotten from point A to point B faster than I have. And sometimes that's hard, but then I really think about it and there is not like, I think down to the week, definitely down to like the summer, like there's nothing that I would trade in my own experiences to have gone and done something else because I really think that I was actively learning at all those times and rarely did I make the same mistake twice. But in terms of believing I was an academic, I just, there were not academics in my family per se, or it, that just was not really a model for me. So it didn't feel like the path that I am on currently it was never materialized as an actual path. I've kind of stumbled into it the whole way. Interesting. I love how you kind of, for lack of a better better way of describing it, stumbled your way to success um, through different opportunities and, and things like that. Certainly very much with intention and with a lot of work and, and things like that. But I think that I love the fact that you found those opportunities and you took advantage of them. Do you ever think about that as you go through these choices, you know, with your most recent finishing your master's and, and doing all that. And do you feel like you're, you've learned things through that process as to how do I kind of figure out my next direction? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of learning. And I wouldn't like the, the phrase that I've stumbled into success. I, I don't know if I perceive it that way, hmm. partially because that sounds slightly static. Like I've made or achieve some level of success. And I don't mm. really feel like that's the case. I feel like what I've done is built trust in myself that when I choose to do something, there's a very high chance that it was the right choice. And I got really good advice from someone because uh, I feel like I'm faced with tough choices quite often. I had a, a job offer following my master's that I just finished. Uh, I was over at Oxford, so I was living in the UK, had this offer to, to move to the UK and base myself over there and ended up turning that down because I wasn't ready to fully close the door on rowing. And I was going back and forth on this quite often. And I got really good advice from someone who said, like, if you have a choice, the fact that it even is a choice means that there's upsides on either side of that. And so once you pause and, and realize that it's now your responsibility to focus on the positive of whatever you choose yeah. rather than just sitting and dwelling on the positives of what could have been on yeah. the other side. Yeah. I love that. Cause I think there's so much that 
a lot of us think about that's we we always put the maybe put the negatives first as we as we think about opportunities or or things like that to really think about the positives on on both sides and really and that's a luxury to be able to have those 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 opportunities in that way tell us a little bit about the oxford experience it was surreal um i applied um Honestly, I applied in the fall of 2020 with the expectation that I wouldn't get in. And I just wanted someone to tell me no, rather than this hypothetical, oh, you can go through this door, you can go do that, whatever it was. I just felt perpetually underprepared. And I think that was the mindset I had while I was training for the Olympics was that I was not prepared to be here. I didn't have the role model. I didn't have the mentor. I didn't have the path mapped out. I, this was my first cycle and everyone else had been doing it for one to two other Olympic cycles already. And they've walked the cycle path already. They understand what happens on this month of this year that they need to do to get themselves in the boat to go to the Olympics. I was learning it all for the first time. And I was like, why did someone even open the door to let me in here? And I kind of wanted that experience of Oxford just saying, no, you're not ready for this. So... And the coach asked me to apply over an Instagram message because that is how recruiting works when you're not in the U.S. And I love it. Um, so I applied thinking I wouldn't get in. And then I got in about a month before Olympic trials. And I had to delete it from my mind, like put it in a folder, did not respond. Um, but then I, the head of the program sent a follow up email and it was like there's like very Oxford jargony speak to where I didn't even know if I'd gotten in or not. Um, and then he followed up maybe 30 minutes later and he said, I just want you to know, like, this is really this is an incredible thing. And I hope you find time to celebrate. And I will never forget that email because I read it thinking from such a state of deprivation and scarcity in the way that my mindset was while training mm -hmm. that I didn't deserve to celebrate yet. I hadn't yet gone to Olympic trials. I hadn't yet had my Olympic dream fulfilled or crushed because of the COVID pandemic. Everything had been delayed by a year. So I was just in this state of suspension for a very long time. And I remember reading that and thinking what it would mean to celebrate having gotten into Oxford. And I was like, I can't eat cake. I'm cutting weight. <laughs> I just <laughs> couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, and, but then the actual Oxford experience was surreal. Um, post all of the Olympic stuff, I ended up not making the team. But that was sort of, I would joke every time I had class intros, like, yeah, I was training for the Olympics. I didn't make it. And this is my consolation prize. And people enjoyed that joke semi-often. I think it was okay. Mm -hmm. um, but like being there, I was just not ready to let a moment go to waste. Um, so I, I really felt like compared to Stanford, where I didn't feel like I deserved to be an academic here, if they made the mistake of letting me in, there's not a moment of time for an imposter syndrome. I am collecting on this tuition. We are getting everything out of it. So that was my experience. That's very cool. That's very cool. I, I hadn't thought about the fact that having to balance the celebration at the beginning of that with, oh, I'm training and I'm also going for something else that's really, really big and both very impactful on your life. And that's an interesting choice and thought process you had to go through to kind of, how do I put this out of my mind so I don't cost the other? 
Yeah. Yeah. It was a fun thought experiment, but we're stronger for it. There we go. As you have gone into, you know, you went to Oxford and to your academic career. Um, can you talk a little bit about you started going into sustainability? So I thought I'd touch on that real quick. What what drove you there? Yeah. So um, when I got to Stanford, I did, I started a master's in international. Uh, sorry, undergrad was in international relations, and I ended up kind of getting involved with a PhD group in paleoclimate, which is a form of geologic sciences that looks at weather throughout the rock's histories. Truly, like, almost by accident. Like, the professor liked me. I got along with the research group. Suddenly, I'm doing a TA position for them every September in the Rockies doing geologic field research. That led to a minor in geology. And then also, uh, I started moving from nuclear proliferation within international relations to anti-terrorism, to looking at conflict as it relates to rising temperatures. And then I just really wanted to go into this intersection of climate security. And I started a master's doing environmental communication with a focus on translating high-level science into legal policy for government audiences, trying to really get get science into U.S. Uh, legislation. I then dropped out of that to try and do the Olympics. And so coming to Oxford, I did a degree in sustainability enterprise in the environment uh, in, the, in the middle, in between the dropout masters in 2018 and the completed masters 2021-2022. I started working for a think tank on existential risks, and I looked at climate risks and ecological degradation risks and how they destabilize human societies, uh, how ecosystem collapse impacts human security um, and really elevated that those issues in a language which gets bipartisan support in the US, which is quite challenging for climate. Um, so the path definitely grew and evolved over time. I think it's been a common thread for me since about 2014, 2015, when I got to Stanford. Um, but I got to officially kind of put a bow on it and pivot myself towards the private sector as well. And now my focus in sustainability is really helping companies to deploy solutions as quickly as possible and decarbonize as quickly as possible. I love the fact that you've been able to explore this and, and discover this too. I mean, you know, a lot of times we've talked and you see the athletic part, part of you, but I, I want to make sure that everybody saw the, you know, this part of you as well, because I think we've had some great conversations over just the sustainability piece of the puzzle as well. As you do this work and you're now in set the rowing to the side for a second and, you, and you're working on it, you're working on your full-time role as actually being in career, how does that piece of that puzzle, I know you always have a lot of things going on, and we'll cover that in a minute, but as you as you have this one piece of the puzzle, how do you look at tackling your day compared to like all the athletic stuff that you do and all of the accomplishments that you've had previously? Um, that's a good question because our team is very small and it leaves a lot of room for agility a lot of team dynamics i think are really important we're all remote we're all over the world i started when i was in the uk and my boss is in california so 
I'm on the clock at 5 p.m. when he's starting his day at 9 a.m. Um, and that was fun for a few months. But the the day to day, I I know that there's a lot of things that I will need clarification on because similar to my identity as an athlete, when I'm working, I will put my head down and get something done. But I'm learning that if I don't have the right brief or it's a new task for me, I am at a very high risk of running in the wrong direction or coming up with an end product that needs a lot of editing. And when I get to that edit process or that feedback process, I think that's common for anyone who's in a job is to like not hit the mark perfectly. I blame myself and I get very frustrated with myself for having misunderstood the assignment. And then I receive any of that criticism as my fault for not clarifying early on. But I think it's, it's a more complicated and more nuanced thing than that, where this is really just a normal workplace environment that I'm, I need to come to terms with and continue to improve in. Yeah. I think one of the interesting challenges, I think, as I think from the athletic world to, to the business world, there's many things that channel and, and work really well that carry over. But I think one of the things that carry over is while the opinions of others may help you a little bit on improving you know, your performance or something like that on in the athletic field. Unfortunately, the person you're delivering it to may have a completely different opinion on what it is. And so you could be running what you think is in a completely right direction. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're <laughs> you're in, on the wrong planet um, and you don't understand why. And I think I've channeled it to, I understand that they are really looking for making that document or making that item a better thing. I just have to remind myself that I am not a mind reader because sometimes that's what's thought about when you go through that as well. And I think that's also a very good way to look at this because if you're rowing, um, there's, there's not too many ways to set a world's best time, but there's definitely Mm -hmm. more than one best way. There's more than one style of training plan. If you're on, you know, a, a soccer team or some sort of team sport like the plays are very dynamic, they flow, but the winner is the winner. It's the person with the most points at the end, and that's just full yep. stop. Like in the work environment, there is a subjectivity that is woven into all of this for these performance indicators, and there's so much nuance to it that I really do struggle with any sort of social prediction, any sort of like KPIs involving customers and whatnot, because it doesn't like it almost feels lucky. There's so many variables you can't control that it's making sport feel beautifully simple in a way that I always heard about, but I never really appreciated until I've really gotten to see both sides of it. Yeah, I think going into the business world, you and even changing companies, right? You, so when I move from company to company to company, well, one what was right at one company is different in another, and going back to that subjectivity as well um have you found anything from your athletic world and your mindset work there that has helped you work through this differential in mindset so far um i know there are things in my working persona that hurt me as an athlete Mm -hmm. um i i think i really enjoy complexity i like thinking about multiple problems and multiple systems. I'd like doing many things at the same time. 
I love busting silos. I love getting to that voice between two stakeholders where they can't see eye to eye, but I can see shared language. Like that I think is what excites me most in my career. And that complexity is what I want to be working on for the rest of my life. And it just so happens that sustainability and environmental and ecological topics are intersecting every single thing. So there's no shortage of that complexity with the work that I'm doing. And I, that's probably what drove me to it to begin with, to go back and answer some of your earlier questions. That did not help in rowing when, as I mentioned, you're rowing for 100 minutes straight up and down a 2000 meter course and you need to keep your head on like my mind would wander. I would have so many thoughts. I remember training alone in 2018, practicing my Italian verb conjugations because that was the only thing that I could use to fill my mind and keep a consistent training profile. Um, so there's definitely a skill that I can find in the working world that was not rewarded in sport for me. Um, on the flip side, things that were beneficial in, in sport that I'm carrying over to work they definitely exist. Um, I struggle to kind of talk about those wins, I guess, mm -hmm. because it's, I like keeping them in my back pocket and not really acknowledging yeah. them. I just like mm -hmm. doing the work. And if something is suspiciously easy, so be it. But I don't want to question it too much. Um, but I, I do think I have an ability to balance my work with the the humans that are doing the work. And I think I, I am able to contribute to team dynamics, even if that's not in the job description. And I've seen that happen over and over again in the spaces that I go into. So I'm very grateful for having built that skill or having innately had that skill and sharpening it in my athletic career and then letting that come over in its current form to my professional career. So we talked about a little bit earlier was just how much you like to do. You always have multiple things going on. Talk to us about the balancing act and or even just what your mind goes through as to why you choose to do some of those. I, I obviously see some parallels in just life in general, because we all get really busy as we as we go through life and people get become parents and they have oh, this life over here. And then, oh, I got to go do work over here. And, oh, yeah, I want to be involved in this thing over here. What have you learned doing so many things at once, the academic career, the the athletic career, you now the working world. What? Do, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll start by saying that also has not reached a level of quote unquote success yet. Um, I know that I need to be better about saying no and protecting my time and kind of not to like put it in money terms, but this is sort of the easy framework, but give yourself an hourly rate and think about how much time spent with your family versus time in your career versus time keeping your body in shape and healthy, how much time it's worth it to allocate each of those hours doing those things. And that has helped me and doesn't have to be like a US dollar currency, right? You can maybe have a different currency for that, but mm -hmm. I, I know I need to be better about saying no to certain things that are not worth the hourly time that I could be putting into it because having nothing matters. Um, I will fill every hour of every day with something. Um, that's just, I've always been, been too good at doing that. Uh, and I have a high tolerance for it. And I know that. Um, but what I will say is, and having spent a lot of time with, uh, with people who are very successful in their careers, 
it's clear to me and it's becoming increasingly clear that um, what I'm about to describe for myself is present in all of them, but I am better in my career because I push myself in, in workouts and in rowing and in, in that space in my life. And I could see a path where I made the switch to my career and it was cold turkey quitting of all of my athletic ambitions, which I know a lot of people go through. And not only does that create this emotional trauma, like it's Mm -hmm. it's devastating to lose your athletic identity. But I also think that athletic identity is going to be the thing that continues to make me sharpen my professional career. And maybe I'll be proven wrong by that. And maybe I'm trying to do too many things well, and it's really not possible to do more than one thing to really become exceptional at it. And that was the case for going to the Olympics. I I really had to have quit many of the things that I was doing in order to go to the Olympics. But I just, I love being able to do multiple things. So I'm figuring out that balance. I don't know if I'm going to shoot myself in the foot by having it, but for the time being, I think that with where my career is and where my athletic career is, I think having both of them makes me better in each of them. The journey really is never ending. And I think you're, there are always going to be cutoffs or trade-offs, right? You know, maybe I could have done more if I did less of this or less of that. But I love the fact that you are all in, really, in doing everything that you need to do for being you. And that's what's right. You're not doing this for other people. You're doing it for who you are and who you can become. And I see that in you in the comments that you make about sustainability. I see that in the in the rowing. I see that in you know your most recent rowing efforts that you that you've just done and and you'll you're continuing on. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're where you're about to go? Yeah. So um, I came back to the U.S. from the U.K. in towards the end of March with the goal of honestly seeing my friends who are on my team with me, but seeing them in a friendly capacity and just having that nice sense of community as I'm finalizing my retirement and closing the door on this chapter. And then I just was in the middle of it and I wanted to work out. And I was like, that's weird. And I wanted to win that race. And I was like, oh, that's exciting. And it just like the fire came back. And then I had two weeks to prepare for U.S. trials after that weekend and ended up winning uh, the single and the double at U.S. trials, which then puts me in Peru uh, in about 15 days time from now to try and qualify the United States for the World Beach Games. Uh, So this is all a different discipline of rowing than I've been doing, but it is so fun. It's this mix of rowing and surfing off the coast of various countries around the world. And I've just kind of stumbled into it. And I'm watching a lot of my peers go to the Pan American Games and they're going to qualify for the Olympics next year. And part of me is like, am I in shape enough? Do I want to do it? And it's a weird game where if I assume no, then I do myself a disservice by limiting myself and what I'm actually capable of achieving. In practice, am I going to switch and go and try and make the Paris Olympics? No, but also like it does, it's not helpful for me to say that. It's not productive for me to say that and then go through my life. Right. So for me personally, um, but it's 
for now, I have the next month of my life in Peru and Costa Rica on training camps. And not a bad place to visit. Not bad. Definitely different than the flat water rowing I was doing before. Very different yeah. scene. Yeah. Can you tell, since most of the audience isn't familiar with this style of rowing, um, and maybe not rowing in general, can you tell us a little bit about what this event really is? I was absolutely fascinated when I learned about it. Yeah. So it's a pretty new discipline, but... Uh, it's called a beach sprint, and you start on shore roughly 40 meters inland. You on go sprint down to your boat parallel to this person that you're racing, uh, bracket style. So side by side, you start, you sprint diagonally out to your boat in your respective lanes. You have to climb into your boat and then row out through the wave break, uh, slalom through two buoys, and then get to the third buoy. So they're about 80 to 85 meters apart each, 250 meters total out. Do a 180 degree turn around that outside buoy, the farthest one. And then on the way back, you row straight in, but with the waves coming in, you end up surfing as you come in on the wave. So you have to change wow. your stroke and manipulate your stroke to stay on top of that wave. Basically launch yourself onto shore and then sprint around uh, an extra buoy that's on land to make sure that you're going the right width around everything, and then hit the buzzer before your opponent can get back to the buzzer. And this buzzer is like an actual buzzer on the ground, like a game show buzzer. Like people are diving on the buzzer. People are doing weird showboating moves, like like fully belly flopping on the buzzer if they have extra time. Like it is so fun it's insane wow. i can't believe it's real yeah so it sounds insane in so many different ways that's part of it thanks for sharing that i think that everybody's going to envision some interesting things coming i know that because so. i'm sure they've never they've never heard of that previously so i'd encourage you to to uh to follow christine and and, and watch her adventures on this because it, it's an absolute blast to even just watch you know from far just to see what you what you guys are working on and doing there so just to one other quick thing I want to cover, and then um, we can wind it up. Um, we've kind of glossed over it. You held world records. Yeah. Uh, that's not something to gloss over. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't stand anymore. Uh, I think I still have one, I think. Um, I set two in high school. One was a 2,000 meter for lightweight junior women, which I set, but they, you need to do it at an official race. So I then had to travel across country and do it in an arena, which is admittedly very hard to do. Um, in the warm-up for the race, I did a 500-meter piece that morning, and I ended up accidentally setting the world record for that one. So I set two in one day, the 500 in the warm-up to do the 2K. So that was cool. And then two weeks later, I rebroke the 2K by a couple seconds. Um, that record actually just fell in December of 2022. So I had it for almost a decade, which is awesome. Uh, and the girl who beat me, she's like 10 pounds lighter than I was when I did it, which is just, she's going to be amazing. I was like fangirl messaging her afterward, like you did it, I'm so proud of you. And like, she's this cute little girl who races for, I, she's, she's, yeah, she's amazing. She She races for the Greek national team. I think she turned 17 at halfway through the world championships this past summer. So she's 
racing 35, 36, 37 year old women as a 16 year old and beating them like jaw on the ground, obsessed with this girl. And then the other one I set was in 2018. That was the all time 2K world record. But about three months after I broke it, also at a race, um, they changed the rules so that you could break it from anywhere in the world. You could break it from your training center. You could break it from your house. And so there was kind of a several records fell after that happened. Um, and I, it's on me for not having tried again. I think I could have, I think I could have gone faster at some point in 2019 while I was training, but yeah. So the, the records are for 2000 meters. They do not currently stand. Um, but that's what records are for to keep exactly. getting faster. Yeah. But it's, again, amazing experiences to, to even be able to celebrate holding a world record. Yeah, that's true. Just to kind of wind it up, any quotes that you um, recommend or, or you use in your life? Um, the one that I've always followed that comes to top of mind is the faster you go, the sooner it's over. And I don't know if I heard it from anyone or if I made it up. I'm sure someone has said it before me, but that was definitely my approach with 2Ks and also periods in life that you want to enjoy and a reminder to slow down and appreciate them while you're in them. And the more present you can be, the slower and better you'll be able to retain it. Nice. And any books that you like to recommend to people? Um, Any any topic area? I mean, I have three and they're all like the trifecta of sport for me. One is called The Captain Class um, by Sam Walker. The other one is Relentless by Tim Grover. And then the third is How Bad Do You Want It by Matt Fitzgerald. And they're all like the intersection of uh, like the true sports science, the emotional, mental side of it, and then just this weird it factor that is intangible that we can't prove, but you can build it in sport. And I think it has lessons for the rest of the world. Well, uh, thank you. I, I'm sure we'll uh, share those with the audience, and I'm sure several of us will, uh, will pick it up. I know two of those are actually on my lengthy list of books to read, so I'm going to have to have to plow through that list a little bit faster, it seems, especially awesome. with all the recommendations I'm getting from the podcast. No kidding. The, where can we learn more about you and and follow you? I'm uh, I'm going to do my best to track all of my upcoming adventures on Instagram. Um, I don't really, I have LinkedIn, I guess you can add me, but those are the only two social medias that I use. So That's good. Uh, Instagram, I have C-A-V-A-L-A-L-A, Kavalala. It's a riff on my last name I've had since 2011 and it's just been here ever since. Very good. Well, I appreciate you being here. I think we've all learned a lot and it's been, uh, been a fun experience. Yeah, thank you so much, Glenn. This has really been awesome to chat about all of this. This has been From Stuck to Growth with Glenn Lifeite. Don't forget to subscribe. We're also around on Instagram at From Stuck to Growth, as well as at FromStuckToGrowth.com. See you next time.